Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Gavin, where the hell are you? Oh, that's right. I gave you the whole weekend off. Ass. I don't know. It's Thanksgiving, though. Maybe I should try to be thankful for all the stuff Gavin does for me. Nope, I tried. I still hate him. The following podcast contains... You cannot say filth, flying filth, flying filth in front of people. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you courted the political endorsement of a mapped up carnival barking cult leader for your campaign, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 289. Reverend Jones, you better watch your speed. It is part two of our look at the early life of Reverend Jim Jones. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by returning sponsor Second and Messiah for all your messianic needs. Are you a prophet on a budget or suddenly experienced an epiphany and looking to get your cult off the ground? Then check out Secondhand Messiah. We've got robes, print-to-order sandwich boards, flashy suits, and shoes. If you're looking to upscale, we've got lightly used luxury vehicles of all makes and models. Secondhand Messiah offers a selection of temples, churches, mosques, and other house of worship waiting to be filled with believers. Already have a congregation and looking for somewhere to wait out the end times? Ask about our Guyanese jungle compound. Only used once. No credit, no problems, because Secondhand Messiah knows all you really need to get a religion off the ground is just a little faith. Now as we meditate, God is love. Love is a healing remedy. We're going to reach out to areas where man has seemed to have difficulty. As we concentrate that the gifts of the Holy Spirit might function are what the secularist might speak of as the paranormal, let us believe. Let us believe. I know I'm a bad son. I've come to accept this about myself, and God knows my parents have known it for years. Word is you are a disappointment. And I have this nasty tendency to mock their faith for a few cheap laughs on a low-rated podcast. I do not do this because I do not love my parents or they made me feel ostracized from them because of my atheism. No, I do this because I am still bitter about being forced to miss Battlestar Galactica, which ran on Sunday evenings while I was forced to go to evening services to stay in home and watching Mormon Star Wars. Daddy, that's not fair. Still... I have to give some credit to my folks for at least having the good sense to eschew some of the more colorful versions of fundamentalist Christianity that were popular in our slice of the South. I mean, Pentecostal steak handling was invented about 20 miles from my hometown, and they didn't truck with that kind of nonsense. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Nor did they regularly get down with the holy rollers falling down in the aisles and shaking for Jesus, though that line got a little blurry from time to time. 
They also did not go in for the big tent revival style preaching where folks would uh, go and sit in the fucking sweltering heat for hours and listen to some glistening huckster shout on and pretend to heal the quivering lame and feeble in the congregation. That's it, dear. Cough out your demon. They were very anti that kind of jesus scene because they could see it for complete and total bullshit. After all, no one could heal the blind or kick the devils out of the swine, raise up a man for the dead, but Jesus, to believe otherwise, was not only heretical, but downright silly. Of course, they didn't follow the logical end game to that and look too closely, It's because it's a pretty short hop from Reverend Jimmy Earl Raybob, faith-healing sister Flora of her piles being a fraud, to, hey, wait a minute, if Reverend Jimmy Earl Raybob was fake, then maybe that Jesus guy was full of shit too. If you start following that path, then pretty soon you're going to turn into the kind of person that doesn't even want to go to church and would indeed prefer to stay home and watch Battlestar Galactica on Sunday nights. Blasphemer! How dare you bring logic into God's house? Honestly, if they'd had a good ABC station, Guyana, think of the lives that could have been saved by watching Boxy and his mechanical Daggett Muffy. As you know, we will soon be landing on various alien planets. It's important that we be safe. Ordinarily, we'd use trained daggets to stand watch at night while our warriors slept in their encampments. But we didn't have any daggets. So we just had to see what we could come up with. We'll call the first one Muffet 2. We left off last week with Jim Jones packing up his congregation on a series of buses and driving across the country to Northern California. He did this for several reasons. He told his most ardent followers that he was moving them to California because there would be a nuclear war, and this would occur on July 15th, 1967. Oh, how frighteningly specific. In reality, Jones understood that his people's temple had maxed out their converts and knew that California was all looking for the next new religion, and Jones wanted apostolic socialism to be that next new religion. Upon arriving in their new home in Redwood Valley, California, a small town in Northern California, just north of Ukiah, and about two hours away from San Francisco, with its burgeoning population of disaffected youths, they knew they were in the right place. To say the arrival of 150 or so religious weirdos, half of whom were black, did not go over well in this mid-60s small California town is, uh... That's putting a mile length. The locals did not open their arms to the temple members and initially tried to kick them out of town. But Jim Jones wasn't daunted. Indeed, he was in his element. He had money, he was a charismatic speaker, and now a highly politically adept and set about winning the hearts and minds of the local. Where most cults would close themselves off from unfriendly locals, Jim Jones instructed his people to prove to the locals that they were just good God-fearing folk looking to practice their faith together, carefully leaving out the part about their faith being communism. Jones struck up a relationship with the local newspapers and local churches. They hosted other congregations at their facilities and sponsored charitable events in town. They showed up to help locals build houses and raise barns and made a big production of contributing to local businesses. From a November 22nd, 1978 article in the New York Times, quote, Members of the temple appear to have kept its doctrines within the confines of the church building, not obviously trying to recruit anyone or taking credit for things done around the town of around 10,000, such as repairing and painting fences at homes owned by elderly people and making every effort to be good citizens seeking to approve their adopted town while supporting friendly politicians. More important than political power, perhaps, was Mr. Jones' bureaucratic muscle in the city and county offices here. There were members of his church not only in this department, but in most county offices, said the probation officer, Mr. Martin. But they never discussed their religion at work. 
Those people gave him a lot of power, said Bertie Marable, who moved to San Francisco early in 1970 to manage an old-age rest home for Mr. Jones, but who broke with the temple in 1976. He had people in every important office in the city and in private businesses like the telephone company. He ruled the welfare department from within. He never had trouble collecting people's checks and never had to be examined or certified as I do these days. Mr. Jones apparently made donations to the police auxiliary for uniforms and to other worthy causes. And he served as a foreman of the county grand jury and was on the juvenile justice commission. Everyone who remembered him was kindly disposed to a man who seemed generous as well as being successful in working with juveniles and addicts. Townspeople, while recalling such matters, appear to forget everything else, unquote. This all culminated in Jones recruiting the assistant district attorney from Mendocino, Mendocino County, Tim Stone, into the church and as the church's attorney. Stone would change everything for the People's Temple and for Jim Jones. It was for the good in the short term but for the terrible in the long. In short order, Jones had at least smoothed over the resentment of the locals and eased their fears of some kind of freaky religious cult moving into the compound on the outskirts of town. And it was a compound, because if you've got a cult, you're going to need a compound. But it was nothing like what Guyana would become. The location was beautiful, nestled in a small valley filled with trees. The temple occupied the grounds of a previous church retreat and rapidly modified and expanded this location with barrack-style housing for new converts, homes for church leadership, and a huge fellowship hall where Jones would hold services, and they began constructions on old folks' homes. I'm sorry, what did you say? Old folks' homes, retirement homes, you know, where we put old people so they can die. The temple still owned and operated at old folks' homes back in Indianapolis, and his wife, Marceline, was quickly able to secure a license to operate the homes in California. According to the road to Jonestown, the facilities in California were considered top-notch, providing affordable yet excellent care and housing to the residents and bringing in a lot of money for the church. And it wasn't just temple members in the homes, although there were many, but folks from all over California. The veneer of religion and their good reputation allowed the facilities to expand to other facilities opening, like, such, like homes for troubled teens or drug addicts or even recently released convicts, many of whom would quietly be indoctrinated into the temple and form the nucleus of what would become Jones's enforcers. Because if you've got a compound, you're going to need enforcers. We need muscle. And we need enforcers. By the late 60s, Jones had established the temple as a reputable group officially in the eyes of the state of California and started eyeing his planned expansion of the temple. It began with groups, groups of temple members along with Jones showing up at civil rights events held by black churches in San Francisco as a, quote, show of solidarity, unquote. They weren't so much a show of solidarity. They were more like uh, booting events to attract new members because Jones loved poaching members from other churches. Hell, Jim even had himself a little plan to snatch up a whole other cult and incorporate it into the People's Temple. Jim Jones had long emulated Reverend Major Jealous Divine. That's his name, is it? Well, that's what George Baker called himself when he was leading his cult, the International Peace Mission Movement. Without taking too much of a detour, Father Divine's cult, the International Peace Mission Movement, was a pretty standard cult where the leader of the cult replaces God and the group does whatever their new God says. Father Divine incorporated the trappings of black church services and preaching into his cult, which Jim Jones had been doing all through his career prior to meeting Father Divine, but full-on ripped off post-meeting him. Father Divine's people were supposed to be celibate, except for Father Divine, eschew drugs and alcohol, except for Father Divine, and, most importantly, they were supposed to 
eliminate racial barriers. And to give Father Divine credit, he worked very hard with that. Hey, where are the white women at? Because back in the 1930s, he was one of the few people that could get away with interracial sex. It's a strange situation, cults. Most of all, Father Divine's people gave all of their money to Father Divine, and, made, and he made sure, in turn, that they had everything they needed, all of which would eventually be incorporated into People's Temple. After Father Divine's death in 1971, Jim Jones showed up at Father Divine's headquarters proclaiming that the deceased Father Divine had been reborn in Jim Jones. Divine's wait widow, who was now the leader of the cult, and who had assumed that position after Father Divine's first wife died and jumped into the body of a young white woman from Canada, was all like, Fuck up out of here with that bullshit. And forced Jim out, Jim Jones out in disgrace. It was one of his few failures of his schemes at this point in time. The road to Jonestown records the bus trip back to Ukiah from Divine's Philadelphia headquarters as, quote, long, quiet, and very tense, unquote. However, back in California, the recruiting was going great. People's Temple now had permanent missions in San Francisco and Los Angeles, where the donations were flowing and new recruits were being vetted, indoctrinated, and selected to be shuffled up to the Mother Church in Redwood Valley. Buses drove up and down California, holding revival-style meetings with other churches in the state, picking off members that they went. According to Tim Reitman's Raven, the untold story of the Reverend Jim Jones and his people, quote, the temple used 10 to 15 Greyhound-type bus cruisers to transport members up and down California freeways each week for recruitment and fundraising. Jones always rode in bus number 7, which contained armed guards and a special section lined with protective metal plates. He told his members that the temple would not bother scheduling a trip unless it would net $100,000, and the people's goal for annual net income from bus trips was $1 million. This wasn't their only source of income. Again, from Reitman via Wikipedia, quote, The temple also set up Truth Enterprises, a direct mailing branch that sent thirty to 50,000 mailers monthly to people who attended people, uh, temple services or who had written to the temple after listening to temple radio programs. Donations were mailed from all over the continental United States, Hawaii, South America, and Europe. In addition to receiving donations, the temple sold trinkets such as rings, keychains, and lockets. In peak periods, mailer revenue grossed three to four hundred dollars daily. This figure even surprised Jones, unquote. Yeah, you could buy Jim Jones Chotskys. According to the road to Jonestown, every mission trip set up a merch table where you could buy anything from cassettes of Jones's sermons, the public ones, not the ones where he told his congregation that God was a giant fake and socialism was the way in the light, to temple literature, to record albums of the temple's choir and orchestra, which were supposed to be quite good, to the affirmation keychains and lockets. You could also buy photographs of Jim Jones, which would protect you from evil, heal your sickness, and provide good luck because each one had been blessed individually by the reverend himself. Oh, I rather doubt that. <laughs> Now, I don't know if there were Jim Jones bobbleheads, but I want to believe there were Jim Jones bobbleheads for sale. Just him with his mirrored shades bobbing on your dashboard as you cruised up Highway 101 in your 72 Plymouth Ventura. By the mid-1970s, membership in the temple had grown from a few hundred to well over 3,000 verifiable members, many of whom lived and worked in San Francisco. Jones claimed over 20,000 members worldwide, 
but Jones claimed a lot of things. From Wikipedia, quote, by the, 19th, by the mid-1970s, in addition to its locations in Redwood Valley, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, the temple had established satellite congregations in almost a dozen other California cities. Jones mentioned locations in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Ukiah, Bakersfield, Fresno, and Sacramento. The temple also maintained a branch college tuition program and a dormitory at Santa Rosa Junior College. At the same time, Jones and his church earned a reputation for aiding cities, the city's poorest citizens, especially racial minorities, drug addicts, and the homeless. The temple made strong connections to the California state welfare system. During the 1970s, the church owned and operated at least nine residential care homes for the elderly, six homes for foster children, and a state-licensed 40-acre ranch for developmentally disabled persons. The temple elite handled members' insurance claims and legal problems, effectively acting as a client advocacy group, unquote. And by 1975, Jones more or less officially transferred his flag for the, to the People's Temple in San Francisco. While the Redwood Valley's location still remained church property, it was now mostly elder care facilities and their caretakers. The heart of the temple was in San Francisco, largely because Jim Jones was becoming a political power broker in the city and increasingly the state. Why? Because Jones could turn out a couple of thousand temple members on quick notice, and political hacks began noticing, and then approaching Jim's to do exactly that in support of causes and candidates. And in turn, Jones got access to the back rooms where the politics took place. From Wikipedia again, quote, Agar Jakes, who was the chairman of the San Francisco County's Democratic Central Committee, referred to the temple as a ready-made volunteer workforce, a man who touched the component of the consensus power forces in the city, such as labor and ethnicity groups, and he was very strong on the Western edition. So here was a guy who could provide workers for causes progressives cared about, unquote. In 75, George Moscone tapped Jim Jones and the People's Temple for ground troops in his mayoral candidacy. Moscone even attributed the success of his run to Jim Jones. San Francisco reporter Lester Kinsolving wrote of the incident, quote, Moscone and campaign manager Don Bradley needed a great deal of help if they were to beat Barbara Galata, his opponent in the election. A meeting was held in Bradley's office with Jones and Michael Prokes, in which Moscone requested Temple volunteers. Jones provided Moscone a small army of campaign workers that worked the city's tough precincts. In a December 16th phone conversation taped and transcribed by Michael Prokes, Moscone acknowledges in essence that we won the election and that he promises Jay, Jim Jones, a political appointment. It was reported after the Jonestown massacre that Temple members were bussed in from Redwood Valley and fraudulently registered as San Francisco residents. As many as 5,000 members cast ballots, outnumbering voters on the rosters. Oh, wow. Allegations of a rigged election. Huh. Wonder if that was true. Maybe we should tell Don. Jim Jones wanted that political appointment. One with real power. Not just the nice-sounding but toothless Civil Rights Commission appointment he had in Indianapolis. And Moscone delivered, quote, After the temple's voter mobilization efforts proved instrumental in George Moscone's run for mayor of San Francisco in 1975, he appointed Jones as chairman of the San Francisco County Housing Authority Commission. Jones and the temple received the support of California political figures such as Moscone, Jerry Brown, Mervyn Damali, Willie Brown, Art Agnos, and Harvey Milk. Willie Brown visited the temple numerous times and spoke publicly in support of Jones, even 
after the investigations and suspicions of cult activity. Jones and Moscone met privately with then-running mate Walter Mondale in San Francisco just days before the 1976 presidential election. Jones also met First Lady Rosalind Carter on multiple occasions, including a private dinner, and corresponded with her in letters, unquote. And so, by 1975, Jim Jones was on the precipice of attaining genuine political power and influence and dreaming of bigger things and higher office. There was just one little problem. Jim Jones was, uh... He's not the Messiah! He's a very naughty boy! I mentioned the Kinsolving exposés earlier. Lester Kinsolving, the religious reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, wrote a series of articles in 1972 about some of the more fantastical claims about Jones and his healings and miracles. Jones managed to apply enough pressure to get the last four of those articles canceled through political pressure and threats of lawsuits. But those articles didn't really make much of an impact on Jones and could have been explained in any case through a combination of a little truth. like uh, I'll admit it was for... Like a really good fucking cause. And pointed out that all the good work that the, people, that the People's Temple did. Which again, I have to point out. The People's Temple was doing actual good in the communities they helped. It wasn't a scam, or at least not a total scam. But those articles and a few other things did spark a series of high-level defection in the church. Like Bob Houston and Joyce Shaw, who were high-level temple members who had gotten tired of Jim Jones's shit not the least of which was being involved in, quote, at least two of the temple's boxing matches where he was pummeled for punishment, suffered a bloody nose, and being embarrassed in front of his family, unquote. Boxing is about respect. Except in the case of the People's Temple where it was punishment, with members being forced to box one another, including little old ladies being beat up by young men. Hell, Jones might have even had Joyce Shaw murdered. Next came Tim Stone, the temple's lawyer, who left the temple after Jones' regular fucking of his wife resulted in her becoming pregnant with Jones's baby and then Jones forcing Stone to sign a letter stating that he'd asked Jones to fuck his wife because he wanted them to have Jim's baby because he could not conceive. Then, then there was the Gang of Eight. In 1973, a bunch of kids, all kids of high-ranking temple members attending college on the temple's dime, got together and started comparing notes about the things they'd seen in the temple, including the physical punishments, the rapid sexual escapades, the financial improprieties, and the growing erratic behavior of Reverend Jim Jones, and after much conversation, arrived at the conclusion... Fuck this shit, I'm out. Mm-mm. Fuck this shit, I'm out. No thanks. Don't mind me. I'ma just grab my stuff and leave. Excuse me, please. Fuck this shit, I'm out. Nope. Fuck this shit, I'm out. All right then. I don't know what the fuck just happened, but I don't really care. I'ma get the fuck up out of here. Fuck this shit, I'm out. This defection caused Jim Jones to gather his top advisors, the so-called Planning Commission, and declare, according to a 1978 Time Magazine article, quote, Jones became furious, waving a pistol at the Planning Commission and referring to the Gang of Eight as Trotskyite defectors and Coca-Cola revolutionaries, saying also, in order to keep our apostolic socialism we should all kill ourselves and leave a note saying that because of harassment, a socialist group cannot exist at this time, unquote. And so... The seeds of Jonestown were being sown. 
Jones had been growing increasingly paranoid and erratic for several years, preaching for hours and hours on end to his core congregation on the evils of theistic religion and bourgeois society of America, all the while sporting the signs of wealth and power. He was heavily addicted to methamphetamine by this time, having started using the drug to work staggering long hours required to keep the temple running and while amassing political power, then taking downers to come off the speed and sleep every few days. He was having sex with anyone and everyone he wanted, men and women. Though Jones would often rail against homosexuality and he forbade his followers from practicing it, he would tell them that he would fuck them if they really needed it and stated that he was, quote, the only true heterosexual, unquote. After he fucked people, he would order them to write a performance review of his sexual prowess. Whoa, 10 out of 10. Whoa. 10 out of 10. I mean, would you give a meth head with a gun a bad review about how well they fucked? In December 13th of 1973, Jones was arrested and charged with lewd conduct for spanking the hog in a movie theater restroom in Los Angeles by an undercover LAPD vice officer. Yes, it was a gay porn theater. Those charges were eventually dropped and buried. By 1976, with Jones' ascendant, the news began to seriously look at Jim Jones, whose political political influence made him front-page news rather than being buried in the religious section of the newspaper, and Jones couldn't get the newspaper to bury the kind of stories that people were telling about the Reverend now. Well, he did for a little while. The Chronicle killed the story before it went to print, forcing the reporter, Marshall Kilduff, to take the stories told by defectors on the record, like the ones I've already listed, and his investigations into things like allegations of fraud, assault, and potential kidnapping, to the New West magazine, ironically owned by a cult leader in his own right, Rupert Murdoch. As New West began fact-checking the story, they spoke with politicians who courted Jones's a favor, who all claimed likely factually, they had no idea things like this were going on. The money that flowed from state contracts was being funneled directly into the temple's coffers instead of being used for the care of the elderly and at-risk youth. The doors shocked them to their core, and the doors that Jim Jones had opened in his path to power started slamming shut noisily. New West contacted People's Temple to get their comments on the article, and they did not receive an answer. This is likely because Jim Jones had already taken off with the planning commission and a core of his faithful followers to the People's Temple Agricultural Project in Guyana, soon to be followed by hundreds more of the faithful. Jones ordered the exodus not just to keep himself beyond extradition, but also to keep him from losing his most devout believers because a cult leader without a believer is just some stone jackass in mirrored shades to hide his bloodshot eyes. And so the ascent of Reverend Jim Jones from general from genuine civil rights activist, humanitarian, aspiring politician and socialist worker God stopped hard and fast and the descent followed. And we all know how that turned out. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. But in spite of all of that I've tried, a handful of our people with their lives have made our life impossible. There's no way to detach ourselves from what's happened today. Not only we're in a compound situation, not only are there those who have left and committed the betrayal of the century, 
Some have stolen children from others and they're in pursuit right now to kill them because they stole their children. And we, we are sitting here waiting on a powder keg. I don't think this is what we want to do with our babies. I don't think that's what we had in mind to do with our babies. It was said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial. No man lay, takes my life from me. I lay my life down. So what can we learn from the saga of a man who dreamed of creating a utopia where all races lived together in harmony, admittedly with him in charge of that utopia? Was he always a madman racing towards the murder of 900 men, women, and children? Or did he start off with the best of intentions? When we we got into this thing with the best intentions, really, I never... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Only to have someone break his concentration? Was it drugs? Was it insanity? Or was it always thus to narcissists? We may never really know the answers. A lot of people believe a lot of things. As for me, I think it was always a piece of shit. Just a messed up version of every televangelist and shitty politician that grabs onto some philosophy they can use to build up their personal power and influence and get rich while doing it. I see very little difference between Jim Jones and Benny Hinn, Jimmy Swagger, Jerry Falwell Sr. and Jr., Pat Robertson, and Donald fucking Trump. There are so many similarities between Trump and Jones. Their sublime embrace of their adoring fans, their entitled self-importance, their blithe surety that they can never, ever fucking lose at anything right up until the time they actually do lose. Then they're willing to burn everything down in a fit of rage and revenge. If Donald Trump had been born poor, he might be leading a religious cult in a small compound right now. But he was born rich and got to lead the biggest cult in history, all because of the money. But that's America. And I'm not saying that Donald Trump will end up surrounded by hundreds of MAGA cultists in Mar-a-Lago as the law closes it around him, sipping cyanide spike flavor aid because you know he's going to be way too cheap to, to spring for the top shelf stuff. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is if that were to happen, I would be perfectly okay with it. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. I know I'm supposed to keep this stuff evergreen, but you know, I, I hope that you had a good socially different th- distant Thanksgiving last week. Now, we can all look forward to weeks and weeks and weeks of idiots shouting about fucking Christmas and how they don't care how many grandparents they killed on Thanksgiving, they will fucking kill the rest at Christmas because this is goddamn America and they have a right to kill distant relatives with a communicable disease. But again, like Arlo said, that's America. If you would rather disappoint rather than kill distant friends and relatives, recommend, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your pods so they can take a listen and wish that maybe you thought about just giving them COVID. All of my infectious thoughts are on the socials at the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook. You can get the show early and ad free along with bonus swag for the show at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast makes great Christmas gifts for people you don't like. All of the shows can be found at whatthehellpodcast.com. We are a member of the Seltzer King Podcast Network, whose latest show has hit your feeds. Bad Advice with Lori Beth Denberg, who is here to answer the pressing questions of life that cannot be solved through the Bledsoe method of drinking until you can no longer recall exactly what you are bothered by in the first place. Head on over to AskLoriBeth.com to find all the places you can find the show and to submit your questions. 
And so for me, Dave, driving that train high on cocaine blood, so producer who is not here this week, no notion has ever crossed his mind. Gavin, and all the fictional people's Tumblr members on this show, we want to say, um, uh, Reverend Jones, Reverend Jones, I think you dropped your speed. We'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.